Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Philippians. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 5 through 8. And as we read just a moment ago from Matthew 21, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey the Sunday before his crucifixion, he was making a statement. He was claiming to be the king prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. That king that Zechariah spoke about, who would one day come to Jerusalem, was a king that Zechariah said would bring salvation and peace. A king whose rule would not be limited to the current political boundaries of Israel, but would reach to the ends of the earth. Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. But what stands out in that prophecy, and in Jesus' fulfillment of that prophecy as he rode into Jerusalem, was this king's humility. We're not accustomed to rulers of such magnitude deliberately displaying humility. A king who is going to reign over all the earth is not usually the kind of king who rides on a donkey. Someone who is going to be a dominant ruler or lead a world power does not usually drive a used car or live in a small house. This is not the kind of king that we are used to. But it's the kind of king that Jesus is. And it's the kind of king that we need. What made this particular act of humility significant as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, not on an enormous white horse, but on a donkey and the foal of a donkey, was that this was not a mere momentary act of humility. But this was just one moment of humility in a lifetime of humility. It was the continuation of a choice that the Son of God made when He left heaven to be born as a man. Coming here to die, to lay down His life for the sake of of others. I want you to look with me at Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 where Paul captures the wonder of the humility of the Son of God. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In those few verses, Paul captures the humility of the Son of God. And then in verses 9 to 11, he describes the exaltation of the Son of God, which Lord willing, we'll look at next Sunday for Easter. But this morning, I want us to focus on Jesus' humility, what the Son of God did in order to save us. Because we won't grasp the significance of what Christ accomplished, of what Christ endured, of what Christ willingly went through on our behalf, unless we really understand who He is and where He came from. Paul Paul begins in verse 6 by saying that Christ Jesus was in the form of God. Before he was born, before he became a man, before he took on flesh, Paul says he was in the form of God. And when he says he was in the form of God, he doesn't mean by that that he was merely like God or looked like God. He is saying that he himself was God, that the Christ, the Messiah, who took on flesh, before he took on flesh, he was God. God. Notice he says not only that he was in the form of God, but that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So when he was in the form of God, he was equal with God. Now, one of the ways we know that that's what Paul means by that is by what the rest of the New Testament says about Jesus, about the Son of God. All over the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that before he took on flesh, he was God. He remained God when he took on flesh, and before he took on flesh, he had eternally existed as God. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, this time about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now think about what that verse says. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, if you were to walk outside on a sunny day... And say to somebody, um, man, the sun is just shining beautifully. I mean, look, look at the sun. And they said, oh, you, you, you're not seeing the sun. You're just seeing the radiance of the sun. <laughs> okay, it's the same thing, right? When he says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, he's not saying that Jesus is something other than God. He's saying that the Son is the expression of the Father. He's the radiance of the Father. And he goes on to say he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's not a different thing. He has the same nature as the Father, exactly. 
The way John puts it, most famously perhaps in John 1, is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say that all things were made through Him, and apart from Him was not anything made that was made. So, He's distinct from God the Father, He was with God. But He's not a different thing than God the Father, He's God. He was God. And it was that Word, John says, who took on flesh. So that's, that's the, the beginning, right, of, our, of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God who eternally exists in three persons. And it is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who's the radiance of the glory of God, who's the exact imprint of His nature. He is the one who took on flesh and came to dwell among us. So if we don't get that piece right... We are not going to sufficiently marvel at what the Son did. Because when He came down to live as one of us, He left the highest place. He was in the form of God, Paul says. But He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not cling to his position as God. He did not cling to his rights and privileges as God. Nobody could make him come down to earth as a man. Nobody could tell him what he had to do, right? Because he's God. He doesn't have a boss. He is the boss. He's God. The Father, Son, and Spirit One God, reigning over all. And the Son willingly came down as a man, not clinging to his privileges as God, not clinging to his position as God, remaining God, but not clinging to all all that he rightfully deserved as God. He came down and was born as a man. So the, the glory of Jesus' humility starts with the fact that he deserves all glory as God. But though he was God, he became man. So Paul says in verse 7 that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, here again, we have to be careful not to misunderstand what Paul is saying. When he says that he was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, he's not saying that he stopped being God. He's not saying that he got rid of or emptied himself of his divinity and instead took on humanity. No, he's saying that By taking on humanity, he was, in a sense, emptying himself, though he remained fully God. So think about it like this. If there's somebody who's a CEO of a big company, and you've got to have to do that job well, there's a certain set of skills and abilities and competencies and stuff that you've got to have. And let's say this CEO 
decides that for the next week, not only is he going to be CEO, he's going to be the janitor for the company. And he takes on the title, he takes on the job description, he takes on the clothing, he takes on the tools, the requirements, everything about being a janitor. He has, in a sense, emptied himself, right, of his privileges and prerogatives as CEO. He's got to mop the floors and all that kind of stuff. But he has not relinquished the abilities and skills and competencies that he has that he has to have to run the company. He still got that. But by becoming a janitor of the company as well, he hasn't added anything really to himself. What he has added to himself is is really a form of emptying himself. But by adding the title of janitor, it's it's as though in a sense he's not necessarily taking something away, right? but he's put himself in a lower position. That's what Paul is saying. When Jesus became man, when the Son of God took on flesh, he emptied himself by adding to himself humanity. We really like being human, right? We think it's really great. And we're made in the image of God, which is a greater privilege than um, all the other creatures of God have, right? Than all the, the animals and the birds. They're not made in the image of God. But for the Son of God... Becoming man is not a step up. It's a big step down. It's an emptying of himself. Not ceasing to be God, but adding to himself humanity. That's what Paul means by he emptied himself. Notice how he says it. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So now he has taken on flesh. Now he has added to his deity humanity so that he is both God and man. And again, the rest of the New Testament makes very clear that Jesus, who's God in the flesh, has not stopped being God. For example, in in John 5, Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. He was doing something on the Sabbath that the religious leaders didn't think he ought to be doing. And so he was explaining, my father is working until now and I am working. And John says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In other words, the Jews understood Jesus to be saying, when he said, my father is working until now and I am working, they understood Jesus to be saying something like this. The father is working, so I can work. If the Father can work on the Sabbath, so can I. Because I'm equal with Him. I'm God. The Jews didn't like that. They didn't think Jesus was God. They thought He was blaspheming. Later, something similar happened when Jesus said in John 8, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And John tells us they picked up stones to throw at Him. They wanted to kill him. Again, they thought he was blaspheming. Why? Because he didn't just say, before Abraham was, I was, which would make Jesus really old. And angels could say that. An angel could say, before Abraham existed, I existed. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. 
claiming for himself the same name that God gave to Moses when Moses said at the burning bush, who do I tell people you are? Who do I tell people is speaking to me? When I go to the nation of Israel and they ask, well, what God are you talking about? What do I say? He said, say to them, I am that I am. That's my name. So when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm the God who revealed himself to Moses. So in the flesh, Jesus has not stopped being God. He's still God, but he has lowered himself. He has humbled himself by being born as a man. And then he says in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbled himself by adding humanity to his deity, by being willing to be born as a man, to come on, take flesh and blood, and all that goes with that. I mean, just, just think about that. Before the incarnation, the Son of God didn't have a body. Right? God is spirit. He didn't have a body. And so he didn't have to eat. And he didn't have to sleep. Right? He didn't have to deal with all the things that we have to deal with because we are embodied creatures. But when he took on flesh and was born as a man... He took on all that stuff too. We read in the Bible that he got tired. We read in the Bible that he slept. We read in the Bible that he ate. And in having a physical body, he subjected himself to mockery, scorn, rejection. John 1 says he came into his own and his own did not receive him. He came to the very people that he had created And they ignored him, rejected him, scorned him. All of that he endured because he humbled himself to come here to save us. But his humility didn't stop merely with him becoming man, though that in itself was an enormous act of humility. But Paul goes on and says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As man, he had to obey. As man, he was, he had to subject himself, right, to obedience. And his obedience was not just occasional, it was not temporary, in the sense of just during a portion of his life. He perfectly obeyed his entire human life, and he obeyed to the uttermost, all the way to the point of death, and not just to the point of death, but to the point of the most horrible and humiliating death that human beings have ever devised. Death by crucifixion. Again, we cannot really, truly grasp the significance of that unless we remember what he left in order to endure that for us. 
It's so hard for us to get our minds around this. But we have to try, right? We, we, can't, we can't grasp all of it fully because we can't even really fully begin what it means for Him to be God. But we have to try to remember that as He hung on the cross, enduring that scorn and mockery and humiliation, and as He bore the punishment that we deserved for our sins on the cross, we have to remember that not only had He lived a perfect, sinless life, but that He had been in the form of God for all eternity. That He was the eternal Son of God who had willingly taken upon Himself a body that could die so that He could die in our place. When He was riding on that donkey into Jerusalem, showing that He was the promised, prophesied King, the humble King who would come to save and bring peace and whose rule would extend to the ends of the earth. That was not, by any stretch, the most humbling thing He'd ever done or would ever do. It was a great act of humility. But it pales in comparison to what He endured just a few days later. Humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that anyone who trusts in him, anyone who turns to him, anyone who believes in him, would have their sins forgiven and would be reconciled to God. You see, if we misunderstand this text and think that the Son of God was merely like God, Or if we misunderstand it and think that when he became man that he ceased to be God. Then we lose the point of the whole affair of Jesus coming to earth. Because if he's not God, he can't save us. He can't reconcile us to God. And if he's not really man, he can't die in our place. But it's precisely because He is both God fully and truly and man fully and truly yet without sin that He can be the one mediator between God and man. The one Savior, the one person in whom there is salvation. So trust in Him if you haven't. That's where we want to start, right? Trust in this Savior. Nobody else has done or ever could do anything so great for you. No one could ever leave a place so high to go to a place so low to do something so great for you. He's the greatest. And He went to the lowest place. And He did it that we might be saved. But notice also what Paul says about what we are to do with this. Not only are we to believe in this Savior, but look back at verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The reason he reminds the Christians at Philippi 
of this story, of what Jesus did, of what Jesus left, of who he was, what he left, and what he endured. The reason why he reminds them that story, a story they already believe, is so that it might not only be a story they believe, but an action that they imitate. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You think this way. You belong to Christ. You are in Christ. And this is what Christ did. Now you do this. Now obviously we cannot match his humility. We don't, we don't come from the same starting place, first of all. We, don't, we can't leave a place as high as he left because we're not God. And most of us will never go to a place as low as he went. Most of us will never actually physically lay down our lives for somebody else. But though we cannot match his humility, we can imitate it. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. Notice in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your glory. Don't let your life be driven by selfish ambition, Paul says. Instead, be humble enough to count other people as more important than you. Don't live as though you're the most important person in the universe. First of all, you're not. And second of all, that's not Christ-like. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's not biblical. He says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't just think about what you need. Don't just think about what's good for you. Think about what is best for other people as well. And that's when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, as I call you to a life of humility, as I call you to count others more significant than yourselves, as I call you not to be driven by selfish ambition, all I'm really asking you to do is to follow Jesus. I'm not asking you to do something beyond what Jesus did. Not really even asking you to do the same thing Jesus did. But I am calling you to follow in his footsteps. To do the kind of thing that he did. He didn't have to come to earth in the form of a man to save us. He didn't owe that to us. It was not an obligation It was something he did willingly. It was something he did in love. It was something he did not not for himself, but for us. And so Paul says, remember what your Savior did for you. And then you do that kind of thing for others. Remember how he served you. Remember how he humbled himself for you. And then you go... And do likewise. He humbled himself in order to save all who trust in him. And now all who trust in him should likewise humble themselves as they follow him. And let's ask him to give us the grace to do that.